Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello, my name is Stephen Schaefer, and I'm excited to bring to you another great interview topic from the 2021 AAMP conference. This time, our guests are Dr. Jane Lucas and Mr. Gregory Johnson. Dr. Lucas is a graduate of the Medical University of South Carolina, after which she completed residency training. In 2017, she received the opportunity to move to New Delhi, India, where she worked as the clinic director for the Institute of Physical Art, Varden. While in India, she managed a clinical caseload, teaching, and training 30 physical therapists. Dr. Lucas is also a recent graduate of an AOMT-accredited physical therapy fellowship program at the Institute of Physical Art. Our second guest, Gregory Johnson, is both residency and fellowship trained. Mr. Johnson was a co-founder and is the president of the Institute of Physical Art. He is also the co-developer of Functional Manual Therapy, and the director of an APTA-accredited AMPT fellowship program in the functional manual therapy approach. He has published multiple chapters and articles on soft tissue mobilization, PNF for the orthopedic patient, functional mobilization, and functional tests for the lumbar patient. Lastly, he is also currently involved in several research projects on functional manual therapy. The presentation we are going to discuss today was titled, Inspiring Manual Therapy to Improve Breathing. This promises to be an exciting conversation. So without any further delay, let's get to the interview. Dr. Lucas, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. How are you, Stephen? I am doing very well, and I'm excited to have both of you here. And since I said both, Mr. Johnson, a warm welcome to you as well. How are you? I am doing great. We're having a beautiful winter here in Steamboat Springs. Well, thank you to both of you for joining us today. It is our pleasure to have you on the show. I really enjoyed the content from your presentation, and it's my hope that our audience finds this conversation to be informative. Speaking of which, I'd like to start off by having you tell our audience why you became interested in this particular topic, which is inspiration. Well, I'll go first, if that's okay. This has been a journey that I have been on for a little while. And it started really personally because growing up, I was a dancer. I danced ballet and I actually went to college on a dance scholarship. And it wasn't until I got out of college and I went through PT school that I realized, as I think a lot of us do, that there were some things that could be improved, even though I thought I had fantastic posture and fantastic mechanics you know, in pretty much every way. <laughs> I learned pretty quickly, and especially once I started working with the Institute of Physical Art, they have some phenomenal classes about postural reeducation. And I realized that I had some pretty significant postural dysfunctions. And as I learned these corrections in myself, which is a very common dance presentation of the elevated sternum and that thoracolumbar uh, hyperlordosis extension, as my sternum was able to relax down, I had access to my diaphragm in a different way, which was incredible because as I started to use my diaphragm more, I noticed a change in my general stress and anxiety levels. And it also changed how I speak. It gave me access to almost like a different pitch. 
so I could speak deeper and slower, which completely changed the nature of my interactions with other people. So I saw a dramatic change in how I interacted with my patients because as I spoke slower and deeper and I was more calm, then I found that my patients were maybe willing to be more vulnerable with me and it just completely changed the nature of my interaction with my patients. So I personally saw such a dramatic change in my myself and then I think it started me on this this interest in the respiratory system. Well, I want to just kind of add in on where Jane kind of brought in. But first of all, Jane came up with this title for our talk, which was inspiration. And I think that has that double meaning to it of one of being inspired by someone else and what that means and how we feel when we've been inspired. And the other one is really to understand how breath keeps the system alive and how it invigorates it. And so for me, it really started at Kaiser Vallejo when I was working with Maggie Knott and watching her use resisted breathing and really changing patients' lives and learning that a hemiplegic patient who held his breath could not bring his leg through as easily and as efficiently as when he learned how to breathe through his walking. A paraplegic, as they were trying to learn to transfer, learning to control their breath was much more efficient than when they were only holding their breath. And I started recognizing in myself that I was a, and continue at sometimes being a breath holder, that I noticed that to listen to someone talk, I'll hold my breath. To do a, a task, I hold my breath. And the more that this self-discovery and also the work with the patients, the more it started becoming really obvious that so many of the orthopedic patients, as I moved away from neurological to orthopedics, had a foundational issue of respiration. And one of the things I noticed, having worked in some hospital settings, was most respiratory therapists were very good breathers. To be effective of what they were doing, they had to have better breath. And so one of my goals is always to be able to do is to be able to be able to accomplish something that I want my patients to accomplish. And so I had to spend time developing my uh, diaphragmatic respiration by being able to work within that. And so foundational in everything that we're doing, whether we're working with the vagus nerve now, the autonomic nervous system, whether we're working with somebody with back pain or learning their body mechanics, a foundational component of it is the training of respiration and the ability to have it become automatic and enhance it for the quality of life. Thank you for that background information. Next, can you provide for us the big picture when it comes to how many people in the United States and for what reasons are affected by disordered breathing? So honestly, uh, a huge number of people in the world have respiratory disease related, even official diagnoses. In the world, they estimate about 550 million people worldwide have chronic respiratory disease. And then within the US, the numbers are still quite large, 63 million COVID cases, right? We're seeing COVID. And then of course, the most common long haul COVID symptom is, of course, there's fatigue and brain fog, but also continued respiratory problems. So I think we're, we're really going to be seeing these people with the lingering effects of respiratory complications coming into our clinic, or even potential compensatory patterns that they developed from 
these respiratory problems that they developed when they had COVID, because now we're dealing with the aftermath of this massive, primarily respiratory diagnosis. And then, of course, we have things like asthma and COPD, which are still very prevalent in the U.S. It definitely affects a large percentage of the population in the U.S. and also worldwide. And then there are so many other diagnoses that have very commonly have a respiratory component, kind of like what I was talking about earlier. Stress and anxiety very often is related to poor breathing mechanics, as well as poor digestion, heartburn reflux, uterine prolapse, and issues with sleeping, like obstructive sleep apnea, central sleep apnea. The list goes on. So it really is representative of perhaps some dysfunctions in the system. When you're looking at uh, disordered breathing, it can really reflect issues that are going on with the system in general. So I think it's pretty imperative to start looking at our patients' breathing. I mean, every one of us looks at our patients in the beginning. You just take a look at their alignment and look at how they stand and how, you know, you're just, even in the subjective exam, we should start right then just just watching them breathe and seeing if everything looks healthy and like they're, they're fully breathing through their system. Really in the optimal state. The average individual really uses respiration as a part of maintaining the health of their full trunk. I teach a course called the three pressure systems, looking at the relationship of the diaphragm, first of all, to the pelvic floor. And if they are aligned and they're horizontal to each other, they're much more efficient. And that diaphragmatic breath that moves the viscera and that helps to really maintain that inner abdominal pressure is a very important component. When you look above, the relationship between the throat diaphragm, which is the glottis, and the diaphragm helps to regulate the pressure of the inner thoracic region. And then by the proper placement of the tongue on the rugae, creates your interpharyngeal pressure. And each one of these pressure systems are dependent upon an efficient posture, as Jane was indicating there. And so posture becomes a foundational component. And when you ask the question, how many individuals worldwide really are involved with having respiratory problems, there's the difference between a pathology that's a respiratory one and that which is a lacking an efficient state that it could enhance for their athletics, for their life, for their many other components. And I would say the vast majority of the patients that we see in our clinics have respiratory dysfunction that can be enhanced. Well, that's a great way to start things off. And speaking of which, as you dove into the bulk of the content for your presentation, you addressed both breathing and then thoracic spine and rib cage topics. I'd like to dive into those areas. And I guess to begin what are a couple of breathing-related clinical tests that a physical therapist can easily use to determine breathing quality in their outpatient population? Well, as I started to say, and Greg was mentioning also, of course, the objective portion really begins at the very beginning of the evaluation. When the patient first comes in, you're meeting them, you're getting a sense for how they speak, even the quality of their voice, how they're walking back with you to the treatment room. And then, of course, I think a good percentage of the first appointment is often the subjective exam. So you're listening for those key phrases, those hints that they may have something related to the respiratory system, right? Something like I was mentioning, anxiety, depression, prolapse, sleep apnea, vascular issues, 
core strength and balance issues. So those things are some hints, you know, maybe I want to look at the respiratory system. And then when you move into the objective portion, just looking at your patient, do they have asymmetries in the face, in the nose itself? A lot of people have had traumas to the face from playing sports growing up or just just normal falls, crashing your bicycle as a kid, right? So looking for those asymmetries in the face, even in the cervical spine, that can definitely affect the trachea. Of course, asymmetries in the thoracic region. And then from there, any of your range of motion changes, so like changes in your cervical range of motion, thoracic, even shoulder range of motion, those things can be indicative of changes in the respiratory system. And then some of the ones that I specifically like to look if I am looking at dysfunctional breathing in the upper respiratory system, like around the nasopharynx, you can watch your patient take a quick sniff and you're looking for that collapse of the lateral wall of the nostril. You can listen to them breathe through each nostril one at a time, and and you'll be able to audibly hear that occlusion. If you deviate the trachea right and left while they inhale through the mouth, you can hear an obstruction or a a restriction around the trachea. And then I also like to measure the expansion of the ribcage. So I'll take a tape measure and I'll measure from the angle of Louis at the front and then around to T3 in the back and measure expansion of those upper ribs as they inhale and exhale. And then same thing from the xiphoid process to T10 to measure how they expand with inhalation and exhalation. Those are some of my favorites, of course, in addition to looking at posture. And like I mentioned, the Institute of Physical Art has some wonderful functional tests that they do to assess the structural strength, one called the vertical compression test, and some other tests as well that we will assess. One of the things that I work with my uh fellows with is being able to have that patient on that initial visit sit down and a component of what they do is observe, becoming a a real observer to really notice not only their mannerisms, their holding patterns, uh, their discomforts, how they use their eyes to remember things, but also to observe just basically what are their breathing patterns like as they are sitting there and talking to you. And that's one of those first interventions. As Jane mentioned, we listen to the quality of their voice to have a good idea of the amount of tension that's natural within that respiratory system. And we move from that to where we observed how they breathe when they're doing their functional tasks to see how they do their body mechanics. And even moving to where we get on a treadmill or some kind of an aerobic activity to observe as they have more greater demands, can they maintain that nasal breathing? Are they forced into a mouth breathing strategy? Understanding each one of those and being able to really see these help us in many cases from back pain through neck pain, through even those who are recovering from a knee injury. Their breathing has a lot to do with it, and it becomes a foundational component of our evaluation and interventions with each one of our patients. Thank you for that information. It was excellent. And let's presume you have a patient in front of you, whether it's observation, subjective or objective, you found some sort of impairment or positive test that indicates that you want to do some breathing-related treatments. What type of things are you going to implement in order to address those impairments? Well, of course, part of this goes back to 
the things that they mentioned in their subjective exam, but also if we were just to try to implement some sort of organized system, the way we went through it at the AAOMPT conference in October of 2021, we basically systematically went through starting at the cranium and then moving inferiorly towards the diaphragm. And that was what we were able to get through in our allotted 90 minutes. And it was, it was fantastic. It was amazing just to see how, how engaged everybody was during that time. I was, I was really, really thrilled with that presentation. So starting with things like the asymmetries in the cranium, even when you distract the nasal bone off of the frontal bone, or if you distract the maxilla off of the nasal bone, patients will oftentimes immediately say that they can feel a difference in how they're breathing right then in the moment. So seeing those places of potential injuries in their past to the cranium and resolving those, uh, one of the things that one of the fellowship directors in uh, Steamboat Springs, his name is Brent Yamashita, and I just completed an AAOMPT fellowship out there with Brent and Greg both. And one of the things Brent talks a lot about is incongruencies. So do you see an incongruency in the cranium, in those bones, like a compression or something, a pattern that doesn't make sense, that doesn't quite fit? And so putting your hands on that patient's cranium and working to release those places to try and restore that balance to the cranium. And then from there, we will oftentimes do intranasal treatments, which is really fun. And again, one of those things that as soon as you have completed that, that treatment, the patient will typically feel a difference in how they breathe. And with these cranial and intranasal treatments and even intraoral treatments where we'll, we'll treat inside the mouth, when I first started doing this, I thought, because there is a rigidity to some of these structures, so I thought it would take a tremendous amount of time to really make a significant impact. But what I've actually seen is sometimes I only need to treat a patient once or twice. And I think the most I typically ever treat them would be like four or five times to these structures and really have a significant impact, not just on how they breathe, but then also on the affected systems, the things that are being affected by their poor breathing mechanics. So it's really fun. It's, it's really a, such a rewarding area to treat. And then from there, we'll go down and work on the vocal folds, try and release restrictions around the vocal folds manually. And I think most of us are pretty familiar with thoracic manipulations and rib mobilizations. So of course, you can move down to the thoracic block that way. And then also, we do a lot of PNF in the IPA. And so utilizing your PNF skills to get the diaphragm firing or even the intercostals, whatever muscles of the respiratory system are not firing, getting them to initiate, and then also making sure they have strength and endurance. Those are some of my favorite ways to go about treating somebody with respiratory dysfunctions. What I'd like to do is to introduce to our listeners a very important organization called AAPMD. I've been presenting at these conferences for the last four or five years. Their foundation is respiration, breathing. It was formed by two dentists who were Dr. Gelb and Dr. Hinden, both of whom were very concerned about a lot of their patients that were having respiratory dysfunction. And starting to notice how many patients who had had braces actually started developing sleep apnea and the need for CPAP machines. And Dr. Gelb developed from his father's work an appliance that actually helped patients get off their CPAP machines. 
So as we started combining physical therapy with dentistry, in which we were doing the mechanical work that Jane was talking about, we started seeing that we were able to help many of these individuals with respiratory problems, with the emphasis really being on sleep apnea. And we've had success with a large number of patients in our four different clinics through just managing the respiratory system, retraining breathing, and being able to get them away from this very dangerous condition of holding their breath during the night while they're sleeping and the vast negative effects of sleep apnea. Every physical therapist needs to be able to be evaluating their patients for it because the more we become sensitive to it, the more patients we're finding that are undiagnosed. The consideration is right now only a little over a third of the individuals in our society right now with sleep apnea have been identified. I like it. Thank you for that robust answer. And of course, anytime we're talking about clinical testing and treatment from the perspective of a clinician, the next question is, how are you using comparable sign testing with this patient population? How are you looking at breathing, let's say, for example, before and after these treatments to determine whether or not you imparted benefit upon your patient? Well, we do have some of the objective measures that we talked about previously, posture, range of motion, things like that. But then we can also look at If you have access to the equipment to look at pulmonary function, so you can measure things like maximal inspiratory and expiratory pressure to specifically assess the lungs, which is something that I will be looking at in some of my upcoming research on this. For people that don't have access to that, some people will look at O2 sats with a pulse ox, which is obviously not something that that we're really expecting to see a change in within each session, but it is definitely a baseline value that you can take. And we look at HRV, so heart rate variability, to look at that balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. Then you can also look at things like spirometer, or there's even a device called the breather. The breather is an inspiratory and expiratory muscle trainer. So you can look at spirometers and things like the breather to try and get an understanding of the respiratory system. But spirometers, they're great for visual feedback. They don't really give you the best objective data. You're not really going to get a lot of numbers from that. Now that we have a general understanding of the process that you're relying upon, can we take this a little bit deeper into the clinic and have you talk to the audience about some brief breathing-related cases that you've worked with in the past? How did they go? Can you give us a brief patient description and what type of outcomes were you able to acquire with that patient? So this is where I think it gets really fun because in the fellowship, I I conducted two case studies. They were both post-COVID patients, both completely different symptoms with COVID. And so, of course, completely different treatments, but both primarily respiratory treatments. The first patient, her primary complaint was indigestion and reflux. And as we know from looking at research on reflux, that it is very often related to the diaphragm. That makes sense for a lot of neurological reasons as well. And and it was really interesting to see her. She was very young. She was 29. And when she came into the clinic, there was just so much burping. And even just to lie down and sit up, it was constant burping. She couldn't even lie flat to sleep. She actually had to sleep with the head of the bed elevated. And she's only 29. And she had had COVID months prior. She didn't know 
that there was treatment for this. That's the other part of this is that most of the patients that come in that we treat for respiratory impairments, they don't realize that there is a treatment for it. And they maybe don't even know the extent to which their system is affected by it. So she, of course, had respiratory problems when she had originally had COVID and it had exacerbated all of these issues like fatigue, heartburn, reflux, nausea, and she had vomiting at the time. And the first time I saw her, it was actually for neck pain, neck pain on the right side. And when I watched her breathe, what I noticed was that she only breathed with the right side of her body, right side of diaphragm, right side of ribcage, and even up into the right side of her neck, of course. And so the real reason she was having this neck pain was because she was really using those accessory muscles for breathing. And when I dug into her history, I found out she had a skiing accident years prior where she fractured, I think it was like five or six ribs on the left side. The whole left side was fully frozen. Now you can start to put the pieces together that that restriction in the left side of her rib cage is probably also affecting her stomach. The ability for her diaphragm on the left side to drop down and allow the stomach to descend inferiorly away from the diaphragm, hence some of the digestive issues and the reflux. So for her, I did treat cranially some. I mean, obviously she's had a history of trauma. She had that really big fall. I treated predominantly the rib cage and the diaphragm on the left side. And I treated her four times. And at the end of it, the reflux was fully gone. She was sleeping flat. She actually said that her indigestion and reflux was better than before COVID. (laughs) So she was quite pleased by the treatment. It was really interesting. Never touched her neck fully got rid of her right-sided neck pain. It was just, just a, a beautiful turnaround for her. And my other case study was a woman who was very physically active, actually in Steamboat. We, we pretty much only see people that are <laughs> physically active. She was coming in for a grade four prolapse. Her uterine prolapse was fully external. It was difficult for her to sit and it had really dramatically interfered with her ability to function. She was no longer backpacking. She was a ski instructor. And so it prevented her from working, right? Even just sitting down was uncomfortable. People that have a grade four prolapse are typically uncomfortable and there's some underlying anxiety. So when she came into me, I found out she had a history of COVID and of course saw some respiratory issues. Now she was interesting because the way she would breathe when I was watching her breathe was she was constantly in that elevated sternum with that excessive extension at that TL region. And so she breathed a lot with her rib cage. And a lot of what I did when I treated her rib cage was to get her rib cage to drop down, to get that sternum to relax and drop down. And when and that's really looking at exhalation. And when you think about what happens to the pelvic floor during exhalation, if you understand these concepts of the three pressure systems, like what Greg was talking about, Exhalation is when the pelvic floor is supposed to fire and be able to contract and lift. Of course, she didn't have a great pelvic floor. She didn't have access to it because of her posture and her diaphragm. So with her, I did go through the respiratory system. She had COVID and she had a history of falls. She was a ski instructor. So a lot of winter sports. (laughs) She was very active. But what was incredible was that after I went through, again, I think with her, it was five treatments, very brief. And I treated her cranium intranasally, uh, a lot to the ribcage and diaphragm to get that down, and a lot of PNF and neuromuscular education to the diaphragm to get that to kick in and working on exhalation specifically. 
And at the end of her five treatments, her prolapse reduced from being fully external, not saying it was gone, but she was able to sit comfortably and it completely changed her lifestyle. Uh, Immediately after my five-day treatment with her, she took a six-day river rafting trip. She took a three-day backpacking trip with however many pounds on her back. So she was back to aggressive physical activity confidently. It was so interesting to see the change in her pelvic floor without having ever touched her pelvic floor. I am also a pelvic floor therapist, but I never did an internal treatment on her during that course of treatment and still made a dramatic change to her system. Those were my two case studies during the fellowship. I really had a great time with them. And I will just finish that by saying there's just so much more we need to understand about this and developing this passion throughout my time at the fellowship. And then, of course, continuing with the the conference at AOMPT, I am hoping to move forward. It looks like I will be the recipient of the Fulbright U.S. Scholar Program, which is a tremendous honor. And I will be studying post-COVID patients in India since India has the second highest rate of COVID cases worldwide. So I'll be going to India and working with two of the most well-respected medical universities and studying the post-COVID protocols in India in one group and the respiratory, if you would call it protocol, that we have sort of developed at Johnson & Johnson and Steamboat Springs and seeing how that affects a a larger sample of people with long-haul COVID symptoms. You know, Jane, just sitting here listening to you makes me even further realize how much we miss you here in Steamboat Springs and how proud of you I am. And uh, I know that through this research you're going to do will make a huge difference in what our profession can start to understand of the power of what we can do with our hands and with understanding the function of a system. My uh, case study I'm going to choose is a young man. 36 years old, referred in because of extensive sleep apnea, a lot of snoring at night, having to sleep in a separate room, a father of three children, actually a physical therapist. And he came in for the treatment of sleep apnea. But as the subjective evaluation started to be delved into, it was obvious that there were many other issues that were wrapped around respiration. And so one was a long history of depression, of cyclic depression, of really being sensitive to being touched, a lot of digestive issues, problems with different food sensitivities, along with neck pain, back pain, and other issues like that. With him, our central focus started being on just getting him to improve his diaphragmatic breathing, improving it mechanically, and then doing training on him. We did a 20-degree angle in which it helps with his head down, which helps to facilitate the diaphragm so it's that first time. What we found was just five minutes of him doing diaphragmatic breathing would improve his heart rate variability dramatically. With having a low heart rate variability, we immediately started doing mechanical treatment on his vagus nerve so that we try to enhance that parasympathetic system, which would help to enhance his breathing. He also had had a nose injury, so we did internasal work, cranial work, work on his glottis, and other areas. But by the time we got through three visits, 
he was a different man. He could sleep at night without his CPAP machine. His heart rate variability had improved dramatically. His depression, he was returning back to his doctor because he felt he wanted a change in his medication, which he is now completely off of. His anxiety had changed dramatically. And most importantly for him, he was having fun with his kids that he just couldn't have before. And he was now able to hold him and touch him and be touched and feel like a more complete man. So this is just a sign that the foundation for him was enhancing his respiration, but it took treatment of a system to be able to enhance the quality of his life, which is, I think, the foundation of what physical therapists should be working towards. The cases you've described are super interesting. Thank you for sharing those with us. And as a final question, given that a lot of breathing treatments aren't generally associated with physical therapy, in this sort of topic, are you often working with an interdisciplinary team, or is this the sort of thing where in the physical therapy clinic you're flying solo? Well, Stephen, I would like to say that I think interdisciplinary care is always is, is always a great thing to incorporate into any physical therapist practice. And I think PTs talk a lot about when other clinicians should refer to us and maybe try to promote an awareness of PT, but I think it should go both ways. I think we should also be looking into how dentists work with our patients and pulmonologists and GI specialists, and then there needs to be a reciprocal understanding of when we send our patients to them, as well as when they send, hopefully, patients to us. So I know Greg is a member of multiple organizations, and he probably follows multiple organizations, not just in PT, but also in dentistry and medicine and other healthcare fields. I am as well. I am also a huge fan of the AAPMD. I actually was recently asked to do a live webinar with them. And so I will be doing that hopefully next month. I was really excited about that. So definitely a lot of referrals to the field of dentistry, but then also just looking at their specific symptoms, if their poor breathing mechanics is affecting their digestive system or their sleep, of course, we may need to refer them out for a sleep study, or their anxiety. So working with psychologists and psychiatrists, there are numerous different clinicians that I think we should be working with. Many of our fellows, one of the foundation of our training that we do with them is to encourage them to develop when they move away from their fellowship, leave Steamboat, New York City, Laguna, Irvine, I mean, or Portland, that they go back into wherever they go to set up, and most of them go back into private practice unless they go into education, their group, their dream team. And a lot of what we try to train them in is is how to develop a dream team and to find those individuals in their environment that they can work with. And so it's a large discussion, but I don't think any individual is capable of completely managing a complex patient. Complex patients take a team, and that's what we try to develop and believe that we're an integral part of the medical profession. I think those are wise words. And as we're closing out, are there any resources that we can link to in the show notes that you think our listeners might find helpful or educational? That is a great question. I spent a significant amount of time researching this during the fellowship, and some of my favorites were, of course, the courses by the Institute of Physical Art, 
So you can find things related to the respiratory system in their courses called the three pressure systems, as well as FMUT, that's the functional mobilization of the upper trunk. One of the major resources that changed how I see breathing is called Breath. It's by James Nestor. It's a book. It's also an audiobook, And it really revolutionized breathing for a lot of people in the country. So I highly recommend that book. The AAPMD people that Greg was referencing earlier also wrote a book. It's called Gasp. It's by Dr. Michael Gelb and Dr. Howard Hinden. It's a great book. Mary Massery also has several courses on breathing. The AAPMD has a webinar series, which is really wonderful and also has speakers from different fields. And so it's a great way, I think, to link that interdisciplinary component that we were talking about. Hermana Wallace is, of course, a Pelvic Health Institute, but they also have a course on breathing. And then they also help, I think, people understand the pelvic floor piece of that. And last but of course not least, there is an organization called the Postural Restoration Institute, which is wonderful and it's a great resource. Thank you very much for those resources. I will be sure to link to them in the show notes. This, for the record, has been a fascinating conversation. Additionally, Jane, congratulations on your Fulbright scholarship. We'll keep watching for work from both of you in the future, and perhaps we can meet again. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.